Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Aletheia. Um, as you might have surmised, I am the Derek of which she speaks. Um, thanks, Daniel, for reading that for us. Um, so before we get started in the sermon, I, I want to talk a little bit about community groups. Um, community groups are really important in the life of this church. You guys may not know this. I've, um, I've been here since the beginning of this church, since it was a, a community group itself. Right, so this church started as a community group of about 20 to 30 people. Now, we're a church that uh, during the semester <clears throat> last year, we were averaging 120 plus. This summer, we've hit as high as 100, and right now, we're even larger than we were when we first launched our services as a church. Um, and school's not even started yet, right? So um, up until now, we've had, uh, not counting the summers, right, because in the summers, we do something a little different, but um, during our semesters, we have had four community groups. Um, an elder led each community group and had, uh, we had folks helping us to, to lead those groups that did a really great job. Four, right? The average attendance in those community groups, depending on uh, the night and how popular the teacher was, uh, mine were pretty low. Um, we would have anywhere from uh, 10 to 20. Um, and at one point in the fall semester, I had 25 and 30 people coming out to community group on a, on a I forget the night, it was like a Monday night, right? Like, 30 people coming out to one community group. That is a lot, right? Now, now think in your mind, when students come back, we always add numbers. There's always like an explosion the first few weeks. Students come in, it's a smorgasbord of activities. They want to go check out all the churches and do all the things and see all the people and praise all the Jesus, right? And so when we start off our fall semester, we're going to add rows probably back to the food table, which means the food table is going to move closer back towards the bathrooms, which we're going to have to figure that one out. But the point is, if even half of the people who come out decide they want to go to a community group, we're not going to have enough community groups. Um, I, I, I can't run more than one group. Brian is leaving. Uh, so that's, that's one group gone. So we've got, we've got three or four volunteers who have stepped up and said, you know what, um, I have been a part of a community group. You guys have uh, shown me how this works. I want to help lead a group. Either they've said, I want to be the main teacher or I want to be a co-pilot. I want to help lead a group or orchestrate a group. But even then, I think we still have seven. We need five more groups if we're going to have just an average attendance of 10 to 15 people starting in the fall. So here's, here's why this is important, why I bring this to you. Um, our future community group leaders, some of them are sitting in this room. You just don't know it yet, yeah. right? Um, you have been, if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, we have invested in you. Not, not we as elders, we as a church, because right, the, the church invests in its saints. So we have an internal mission, we have an external mission. Internally, we have invested in you over time, some of you, for a number of years, Right? You have the capacity to do this. You have the skills to do this. You have the knowledge of God and the love for people to lead a community group. You do not have to have a seminary degree. You do not have to be an expert at interacting with people. If you recall, I said I have led a community group. I don't like leading community group. Right? It's, it's out of my comfort zone because uh, up here I talk and you just listen. It's much safer for me. In a community group, I talk and I have to interact and I have to figure out how to talk to people. And that's not my strong suit, but I do it because it's that important that we be a church who are disciples of Jesus, who make disciples, who show them what it's like to follow Jesus. 
That's what our community groups are for. That's the mission of this church is to make disciples who are growing in their faith in Christ, their faith and knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is in their lives. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Over the next couple of weeks, I want you to pray earnestly, ask God if he might be calling you to step up and help lead one of our community groups. We have the, the curriculums ready to go. We have options for you to choose from. We, uh, we don't ask that you do it alone so you can grab friends and guilt them into helping you. I don't care. Um, but I want folks to sign up because we need help. And I, I think, I, I could be wrong, but I, I think that our future community groups are here. And I think that God will, will let some of you know, hey, hey, this is your time to step up, right? Because our church is growing. Um, and, and we need to be able to manage that growth by, by providing firm spiritual foundations, opportunities for people to learn and grow in their understanding of Christ. And you can be a part of that mission, okay? So think about that. If, if you go through this prayer process and God's like, yes, it's you, and you're like, but no, I don't want to, um, that's fine. That's fine. Again, I'm in the same boat with you. Come talk to me. Talk to Kevin, to Brian, to Brent, uh, to Stephen, and we'll help you sort of understand what it's going to look like. Um, I, I think we have a... Kevin, when is that form going to go up, the, the information on... Okay, so we're going to put a, a community group sign-up sheet on the internet, uh, Facebook, I think, um, tomorrow. So be on the lookout for that, right? So if you're feeling a little conviction now, maybe you can get a jump on it. Um, so there we go. So now to the topic at hand. Um, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. As we get started, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a homework assignment, or a pop quiz is, is more effective. Um, pop quiz, you guys know what this is like. I'm going to give you a, a question you have, like 30 seconds to give me an answer. So here's the scenario that you get. Someone that you know who is not a believer, a friend, a coworker, a family member, a classmate, comes up to you and they said, um, I heard you're a Christian. Tell me what you know about God. And you have 15 to 30 seconds to come up with five things that you know about God, five attributes of God, five characteristics of who God is. What do you come up with? I'll give you 30 seconds to write those down. Or type them on your phone, text them to your partner, whatever. It's 2018, nobody has a pen and paper. All right. Pins down, eyes up front. Phones down, whatever. All right. Uh, what do you have in your list? I, I'm, I'm going to guess that um, our lists, even if it's just up here, our lists tend to skew in one of two directions. Either your list says things like love, compassion, peace, redeemer, uh, champions, something like that, right? Or your list says sovereign, judge, conqueror, other things, right? Um, but we tend to go in these two extremes. I, I'm guessing that there aren't many of us, maybe some of us who have walked with uh, the Lord for a, an exceptionally long time, you know, 15, 20 plus years. Um, some of us might have a more robust picture, but we still don't have a complete picture, what I want you to see in the passage this morning is that <clears throat> God gives us a picture of himself in these closing verses that sort of rounds out the edges, right? The, the whole opening of Zephaniah, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3.5, um, all 
give us this picture of God as a righteous judge. He's calling people to account. He's holding them accountable for their sin. But in these verses, we see a little bit more of God's character. We're going to see him as king. We're going to see him as protector. And we're going to see him as redeemer. All three of those things. So king, protector, and redeemer. And I think you're going to find that as our understanding, over, over time, as our understanding of who God is grows, so too does our hope in him. Because God is not one thing or the other, right? I mean, he has, he has a lot of attributes that we need to know and study and cherish and love. When Kevin, uh, when Kevin preached a couple of weeks ago, he said something that I think is pretty helpful um, to get our, our minds right on this. He said that um, essentially we have a tendency, uh, especially if you're in the younger generation, of, of which I would include myself, right? Um, most of us in this room, um, those of us who are younger, we tend to make things very casual, right? We, we push off on um, like titles and honorariums. Um, we go first name. We have uh, pet names for each other like bro and dude and pal or guy, buddy, whatever. Um, but we, we sort of reject formality, right? And so um, the example that Kevin used is that, you know, there's this shirt out there that says, um, Jesus is my homeboy. The problem with that, the, 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 the importance of language is that language sort of steers our thinking. It frames our thought. It frames our speech. And so when we adopt overly informal language about anything, the significance of that thing sort of wanes a little bit. Our, our relationship to it becomes a little bit more equal than it ought to be. Right um, there, uh, I, I as you guys know, I love uh, politics and government, and I, I, I binge watch The West Wing about uh, once every two or three years. And there's this uh, really cool scene in there where um, the president Josiah Bartlett is in his office and he's contemplating this really uh, serious matter. He's, he's contemplating whether or not, as a Catholic, he should commute the death sentence of someone who is uh, on death row and, and he's like going to be executed in an hour. And so he calls in his priest from his home parish, and the priest comes in, and the priest says, how should I refer to you? Do you want me to call you Jed, which is what he is in the parish, or do you want me to call you Mr. President? And, the, and Josiah Bartlett says, keep it Mr. President. That helps remind me of the gravity that, that's in this office, as they sit in the Oval Office. Um, because when you skew away from that, then the relationship changes. Um, he is, God is, your righteous judge and merciful father. He's a holy God, yet he's the protector of the lame and the oppressed. In Zephaniah 3.8, so going back to uh, Stephen's sermon last week, um, what does God say? God says, um, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. The people who are going to receive his judgment, he's calling them prey, like a lion, right? For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth will be consumed. And then we get verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that they may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. There's a shift. 
Then the passage morphs into something completely different. But God, God begins to reveal himself not only as our judge, but also as our king, our protector, and our redeemer. Read with me again verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. I don't think verse 14 is talking about just your average celebration like, hey, Let's sing a song because we're so happy. That's not what's happening here. Look at, the, look at the visual that we're given. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. This isn't the, the joyous noise of a people who are just happy. This is the celebration of the return of a conquering king. We have never seen anything like this in modern days. The closest that we might come is VE Day, right? When, when Germany unconditionally, uncon- why is that hard? Because I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains, that's why. Unconditionally surrendered to allies, right? Who was around when that happened? Who was at the party? <laughs> like, nobody. Um, nothing like that has happened in modern American history. Do you realize that? Nothing. The nearest we can maybe wrap our minds around it is if we think here in Gainesville of homecoming. The whole city shuts down. I work at the University of Florida. They give me the day off. Why? That's ridiculous, right? But the, the, the city shuts down. There's this massive parade. There are parties all over the place. We fly in rich alumni to come and give us lots of money because the Gators are going to play a football game. They're probably going to lose the next day. Right, like they're going to show up the next morning and play like Mississippi State Junior College. They're going to eke out an overtime win, and everybody's going to lose their ever-loving mind. But the homecoming celebration is something we throw on before we even know the outcome of the game. God isn't just marching back from a football game, right? Zephaniah says the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. Keep verse 8 in your mind as you read this, right? I will round up my prey, but the Lord has taken away the judgment against you on that day. Not only are they no longer guilty, but they're no longer under threat because their king has gone out before them and removed their enemies. He's protected them. Their kingdom is secure. Imagine what it would be like if every time the Gators went to a game, football, baseball, basketball, lacrosse, whatever your flavor is, that the livelihood of the city depended on it. If they lose, we die. Would you move? Yeah, every one of us, we would move. We'd move to a town where football is not a thing and we would live a quiet, peaceful life on a farm like Thanos, right? Like... Imagine for a second that your life depended on the outcome of their games. When they won, holy cow, homecoming would look like a funeral procession, right? The fact that that God is our king, this imagery we're given, the king, the Lord your God is in your midst, your king, the king of Israel. This reminds us that God is a king, right? And so as a king, 
we are subject to him. There is nothing in our life that shouldn't fall under his authority, right? And rightly so, because he is the sovereign Lord. And so we ought to submit everything to him. But, but, but we are not naturally, I don't know if you guys have noticed this in your life, but we're not naturally inclined to accept authority. Like I, um, we went to uh, Disney last year for the first time. I'd never, I'd never been to Disney. Caitlin grew up in a family of money, so she went all the time, but I'd never been. And so for the first time as a 31-year-old man, I start going through the streets of Disney and random people who work there, Imagineers or whatever you call them, kept coming out and saying, don't walk there, don't park there, don't eat that, that's gum on the ground, don't pick that up, sir. And it just, it just irritated me. And finally, at the end of the day, I snapped at one of them. I had to go back and apologize to her later because Caitlin was shaming me. Um, we reject authority in whatever form it comes in. This is the story of humanity, right? So if, you, um, if you're familiar at all with Old Testament history, you know that um, after the period of the judges, right? So um, Israel had a number of judges who stepped up and lead them. By the way, Judges is my favorite book in the Old Testament. Um, just imagine that as you're reading it, it's the script for like a, a Jerry Bruckheimer film or um, who is the one that blows up all the things and does the uh, Transformer movies? Michael Bay, there, thank you. Um, it's a Michael Bay movie. But um, after the judges, this interesting thing happens. Samuel is leading the people as their prophet. And so by leading the people, what I really mean is he's their intercessor between them and God. So Samuel would go out and talk to God. God would say, do this. And then Samuel would go to the people and say, hey, here's the word from God. Here's what we're going to do. And everybody's happy with that. As Samuel got older, he stepped back and put his sons up. But his sons didn't walk in his ways. His sons were not uh, all that faithful to God. And so we see this scene in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Tough but fair. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So let's think about this request for a second. Okay, good on them for recognizing that Samuel's not going to be around forever and they need a better leader, that, that Samuel's children are not it. We're, okay, we're tracking good. Then they go way off the rails because what do they say? Give us a king like all the other nations. Talked about this a few weeks ago. What was the point of Israel? To be distinct. And so they're trying to give up their distinction. But an interesting thing happens. The book tells us, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, so do what they say, but be sure to warn them of the ways of the king that shall reign over them. And from that moment on, like that was sort of like if you could point to a moment in the Old Testament where things began to go off the rails, that might be one of the more significant ones, right? What brings us to the moment that we're in in Zephaniah, where Zephaniah is saying, you guys are so wrong. Come back to God, right? Um, and what God warns them about in the, the next section of Scripture is that... Um, the difficulty they're going to face without him as their king. He goes on from there to tell them that, that the king that they ask for, the king will not only be a poor ruler, but he's going to exact a heavy price. He's going to take from their wealth to fill his coffers. He's going to take their gold to make himself richer. He's going to take from their fields 
to fill his stores. So he's going to eat off of their backs. He's going to uh, accumulate wealth off of their backs. And more than that, this is sort of the significant part. Kings need armies. Kings need servants. Kings need things to help run their government. And they demand that of their people. And so God says, this king will take your sons and fill his armies. You're going to lose your sons on the battlefield for this king who's a poor ruler. He's going to take your daughters and enslave them in the palace to be his bakers and his servants. The the vision here of this human king is that his rule will be life-taking. It will take life, literally. On, On the other hand, When God returns as their ruler in this vision that we're seeing at the end of Zephaniah, God's reign is life-giving. The judgment's removed. The enemies are removed. The king, their protector, is now in their midst. Look at verses 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When God returns to his people as king, there's no more need for fear because God is their protector. Their enemies aren't even going to think about approaching the throne. They can't think they're gone. That's the sort of peace and protection God is offering his people when he returns. He says, let not your hands grow weak. How many of you guys have ever experienced a moment of fear where you literally just felt your body drain? I'm not talking about like you're watching a scary movie and you know the killer is under the bed and the person's going to the bedroom anyway and you're yelling at them and then it like, crops up, like the killer jumps up and stabs the person and you're, you're, you know, like, you're startled, you were unsettled perhaps. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you don't think your body can literally move, you're so scared. I had never experienced anything like this until a couple of weeks ago. Um, let's see if I can... Oh, I got this. Okay. So um, we were at the beach a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Trip had. Um, so let me just, first of all, going to the beach with children is a terrible idea. Don't, just don't ever do it. There's sand everywhere. You get touched with sandy, wet hands. They feed you food that's sandy and wet. It's just, don't, it's not worth it. Um, you also don't get to sit down and read your books anymore. But so I, we're out there with Trip, and Trip started, like, we gave him swimming lessons this summer, and so he wanted to go out and play in the water. So we would go out, um, and it would, like, splash up on his ankles, and he would ask me to put him on my shoulders, and we'd walk out till the water was about uh, waist high on me, and we'd jump over the waves. And he loved it. It was just a blast for him. It was the dumbest thing ever, but he really enjoyed it. Um, and so the last day, we were actually going to, like, enjoy the beach, it's Friday. I step out, and I have never been in ocean in an ocean that was so um, impassable. Like I, I mean, literally, like, I, and I'm not making this up. Walking in place for two minutes, trying to make it out to the waves. Like the 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 rip current was so strong, and the waves were great though. Like the you know great body surfing uh, or whatever you do on waves. I'm not really good at any of those things. Um, and trip. 
sees uh, my buddy and his daughter out in the water, and he wants to go out there with them. And I see my friend Ben, and I'm like, well, Ben's out there with Indy. It must be fine. So I, I must be fine a little bit farther out. So I, I put Trip on my shoulders, and we go out to the water, and it gets up to about waist high, and the waves are coming in, and it's jumping up to my chest, and that's fine. Um, but it's a little stronger than I expected, and, and suddenly, like, a wave pops up, and it hits Trip in the face. So he gets splashed, and he wasn't prepared to get wet when he went out in the ocean. So he said, Daddy, can we go back? Absolutely. So I, I turn to take a step, and as soon as I lifted my foot off the ground, a wave came over top of me and knocked me over. And the rip current pulled me to the side, and Trip was no longer in my arms. And I stood up, and for 15 seconds, I had no idea where Trip was. I have never in my life been so terrified. And I, I literally, I'm standing there, like, I don't know why I was doing this. My body, like, I wasn't thinking. I'm, like, moving the water out of the way. Like, that's going to help me. And suddenly, a, a miracle, he was wearing neon-colored shorts, and I happened to see him under the water and grabbed him and threw him up in the air to get him out of the water. And I'm fighting against the water, trying to stand up to catch him. The water is still hitting us, and I'm fighting. And I literally, like, I'm telling my legs to stand, and they're not listening. And I finally got a hold of Trip, and I brought him in close. And I got back to the beach and literally fell to my face because I had no idea what had just happened. Like, the fact that he survived that. And Trip, I was like, Trip, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, Daddy, I held my breath like you told me to. Well, thank God that's the only thing he learned at swimming lessons, because he darn sure didn't learn how to swim. Um, he's literally, like, just floating there. Uh, like, that's, that's what I think about when I read verse 16, where it says, let not your hands grow weak. You have no reason to fear because God is in your midst. That's what I think about. But you know what? As terrifying as that was for me at this point in my life, that pales in comparison to some of the fear that people in this congregation have felt, to people in this city feel daily, to, to what people around the globe feel on a regular basis basis. There are people who have illnesses that at any moment could take their life. They never know when the next event's going to be, and so they're, they're constantly in some form of fear. There are people who, for as long as their countries have had established boundaries, have never known a day of peace. They don't know where the next meal is going to come from, and they don't know where the next bomb is going to drop. But when God arrives to dwell with his people, there is an end to fear. More than that, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I, I, I love this image, right? Like God singing over me. When we go out to eat, dinner on my birthday, I tip the waiter extra behind my wife's back so that when she tries to get them to come sing to me, they won't do it, right? I just say, whatever she gives you, plus 10%, right? And th th there's this unspoken rule. Um, it's understanding, rather. Uh, it, it, it makes us kind of feel uncomfortable sometimes when we're the object uh, of everyone's focus. But in this vision, we're seeing God 
the creator of the universe, the mighty king who just wiped out all of our enemies, the, the king who is coming back to the celebration as a conqueror, who we are celebrating is singing over me. That is absurd. That should make your heart skip a beat. The same God that will hold the world accountable for its sins rejoices over you. John Piper mused about what it would be like to hear God singing in his sermon on this passage. Um, he said, when I think about the voice of God singing, and I'm not even going to try to read like John Piper. You know how he is. He's like down here and up there and like whatever, it's up and down. Um, when I think about the voice of God singing, I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with the kitten's purr. I hear the power of a hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. And when I hear this singing, I stand dumbfounded, staggered, and speechless that he is singing over me. Do you know that the Old Testament is littered with scenes like this? These, um, the, the New Testament is not the only one that speaks of God's great love for his people and all that he is willing to do for them, right? And, and, and so um, that's important to point out because there's this persistent, I think, intentional mischaracterization of God in the Bible among uh, sort of like, um, what's the right way to put this? Uh, I'll just say secular circles. Um, when, when they're trying to reject God, and I, I say intentional because we, we are sort of programmed to try and justify our positions, and, and that means that we will ignore data that is contrary to our belief if it supports our belief to do so. If it strengthens our position to ignore things, we will intentionally ignore things. It's just kind of how we're wired. And so the Old Testament is usually seen, like the, 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 the Old Testament God, they'll say, is this fickle, angry, um, just ruthless sort of deity. And then the New Testament comes along, and that God is suddenly transformed into Jesus, who is happy and peaceful and the Lamb of God. And there's no more Lion of Judah, but that's not the way it works. It's only half the picture. Um, here's just one example of God's love for his people that we can see in the Old Testament. Can we look at uh, Isaiah 54, 4 through 8? Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the, repro the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. That, that might not be as impactful to us here, but um, at the time this was written, to be divorced, and like specifically if you were the wife and you were divorced, that brought great shame on you. It often brought destitution as well because um, it, the, the husband took all the wealth and assets and so you were kicked back on the curb. The reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Wives would be cast like the wife of our youth, right? So um, we look better when we're younger than when we're older, generally speaking, right? I'm not talking like comparative one to another. I'm talking about like 31-year-old Derek is looking better than what 90-year-old Derek is going to look like. And so... Um, it would happen 
that as a wife got older, her husband would suddenly say, you know what, I don't find you attractive anymore. Cut. Let me get a new wife. And so God's saying, the, like a wife of youth, when she is cast off, God takes you. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is in part how God sees you, how he wants you to understand your relationship to him. God is your Redeemer. He's not only redeemed you out of shame, but for the sake of your relationship with him, because you have this relationship, your shame is not remembered. God doesn't call it up. God doesn't point back to it in the middle of an argument and say, well, remember that one time when you made that really stupid mistake. God doesn't do that. It's gone. That, that's what's so powerful about the redemption of God is that all of these things that used to be true of you, the fact that you were cast off, the fact that you were not wanted, the fact that you carried shame, they're no longer true of you because the God of the whole earth is your Redeemer. He has given you new life. Does that resonate with you? Does that that stir your heart? Because it should. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. If your list of attributes skewed towards love, then you're thinking, like, look, shame is not that big of a deal. Like, I don't need to worry about being shameful because God loves me. Right? He doesn't count that stuff against me. Okay, that, that's fine. Um, if your list skewed more towards judgment, it might seem a, a bit more of a familiar um, emotional state. Right? And so um, I say that because you know, maybe we need to just sort of talk about what shame is. Um, the, definition, the definition of shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Not to be confused with when you catch your dog eating trash and he gives you that look like, oh, you're here, right? That's a different thing. This is a painful sense of humiliation because you know what you did was wrong. In order to feel shame, then regardless of what your list looks like, in order to feel shame, we have to understand that our sin is so aberrant to God, it is such an offense to his holiness that we are deserving of the wrath that he's expressed throughout Zephaniah. I really hope you're not sitting there thinking, finally, some passage in Zephaniah I can actually listen to and get something from. The rest of it really doesn't apply to me. Now we're talking about the good stuff. This is the God I know and love, right? Like, that's half the picture. Do you understand that your sin, no matter what it is, is such an offense to God's holiness that there is an impassable chasm between you and God? You cannot get there. It doesn't matter if you think that chasm is this big or you think it is infinitely wide or you think whatever you want to think about it, you can't muster up the strength, you can't get it right enough to make the leap from wherever you are to wherever God is so that he will look at you and go, there, you did it, congratulations. 
We are so sinful that we can't even be in God's presence without some sort of protection, right? So um, again, I'll go back to Old Testament for this. In the temple, in the middle of the temples, right? So the temple, in case uh, you're a little fuzzy on what that is, why that's important, that is the, the place where God's presence would come down and be with his people. He would come down and there would be, like they could only go so far, but God would be there. And the high priest would go in uh, once a year and he would offer a sin offering for all of Israel at one time. Partly because nobody else wanted to go in there, right? And so what would happen is that priest would go through this, um, all of this ritualistic cleansing. He'd wash himself a number of times. He would wash his clothes a number of times. The sacrifice would be washed. Every bit of impurity was, was removed according to the law as best as they could get it. And then the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he had a rope tied around his waist because there was always the chance that maybe they forgot to scrub their elbows and they would die. And so the other priests would have to pull his lifeless body out of the Holy of Holies because they couldn't go in there to get it. And then, bonus reference, um, once they got in there, uh, Zechariah 3 gives us a picture of what it looked like. The priest goes in and he's covered in excrement. Even though he's gone through all of the ritual cleaning, what God sees is all of the filth of the human heart on them. And the only way it's removed is by God saying, here, put this on, put these clean clothes on, because this is how I choose to see you. God isn't rooting for you to fail. He offers you redemption. Anger, like, so get this. We'll repeat this over and over and over again until it is just, in, just, naturally true for you to understand this. Anger is not an attribute. It is not a characteristic. Anger is a response. Anger is a reaction. Angry is what we get when we see something that we love being threatened. Because anger is not the opposite of love. And so sometimes when we, when we want to think about God, and the reason sometimes people have trouble, even Christians, have trouble marrying what they understand as the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is because they see more anger and wrath in the Old Testament because they don't really understand what the cross means. And they see more love and forgiveness in the New Testament. And they think, well, those are diametrically opposed because if I love someone, I can't be angry with them. But that's just simply not the case. If you love someone, you know that's not the case. Right? Anger is love in defense. It's, it's like love in action, if you can think about it. Defending what you love from that which would threaten it. And so if you look at the Old Testament, times when we see God angry, it's in response, not only to Israel offending his holiness, right? Because, I mean, that's certainly an issue. But in so doing, Israel is, is, is getting off track. They're getting off their design. They're getting into things that are going to hurt them. They're getting into things that are literally going to end their life in most cases. That's why God gets angry. It's the simplest explanation that I can give you for, for God's anger. Like, obviously, it's, it's a much deeper topic than that, but that'll do for, a, for an hour and a half long sermon. Um, it's not really, I'm kidding. Uh, when we engage in sinful acts, we're not acting according to our design, and God knows that's not good for us. He loves us. He pursues us. He calls us to abandon 
our sinful ways. Remember, I told you a few weeks ago when I preached on Zephaniah 1 that um, it has been 1,400 years at this point, give or take maybe a century, of God calling after his people saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me because judgment is coming, exile is coming. You're going to lose the land I gave you. 1,400 years of God pursuing and offering forgiveness. But I love how God contrasts his anger and his compassion. Look at verses 7 and 8 in there again. For a brief moment, I deserted you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Elsewhere in Exodus 34, God tells us that he is slow to anger and quick to forgive, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God loves you and his pleasure is to be with you, to rejoice over you, to display his mercy and sing over you. Zephaniah also speaks about God's role as our redeemer in verses 18 through 20. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame to praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Look carefully at who God is calling to himself. Isaiah talks about those who have borne the weight of shame on their souls. He says that it's the deserted and grieved in spirit that now call the Lord their Redeemer. Zephaniah tells us that it's those who mourn, those who are lame and outcast, whose shame will be, who will be exchanged for praise. Literally, God is calling to himself the rejected, the broken, and the shameful. If this is a game of pickup basketball, God's calling in the spiritual equivalent of a chess team, right? Like, these are not the all-stars. The only ones not being invited to this joyous homecoming are the oppressors, the wicked who prey on the weak, the ones who stand opposed to God. We see this calling, right? This calling from God for all of, all of the weak, all of the lame, all of the outcast. God's constantly calling those people to himself. And we see Jesus himself say this in Matthew 11, starting in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't, I don't know where you are right now emotionally and, and spiritually. I, I sort of guess using the law of averages that there's, there's a mix of people in here. But here's what I know for certain. Here's what I know for certain. Regardless of what you have going on right now in your life, spiritually speaking, whether that is zero whether it is turbulent, or whether this is the healthiest season of your Christian life you've experienced yet. If so, praise God. But the fact remains 
that the gap between you and God is impassable. The gap I mentioned that exists between us and God because of our sin is only closed by the cross of Christ. Do you know why Christ's burden is easy? Because he's bearing it for you. Do you know why his yoke is light? Because his yoke was the cross. Jesus is the only one who can redeem us out of the oppression of sin and death, heal our lame souls, and gather around himself all those who have been exiled and in so doing restore us. No, God is not your homeboy. God is your king. God is your protector. God is your redeemer. And God is your judge. If you want to know how God's judgment can bring about this sort of renewed joy, the kind of uh, hope that comes when God reigns in your life as king, look no further than the cross of Christ. The only way we move from Zephaniah 1-2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, to Zephaniah 3-15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, is by way of Calvary. The cross of Jesus Christ. All the wrath that we've seen through two and a half chapters of Zephariah is poured out not on us, but on Jesus. In this way, God's judgment brings redemption. Because if Christ didn't take that judgment for us, we would take it. And there would be no redemption. Bear in mind, right, there's no Zephaniah 3, 8.5 where God gathers all these nations together and they, of their own volition, offer up contrite hearts. Repent and come up with the right combination of things where God says, hey, you finally got it. I mean, it took a long time, but here we are, good job. Like, there, there's no 3, 8.5. Zephaniah 3, 9 tells us it is God who gives them pure speech. Zephaniah 3.11 tells us that it is because of God that this people is no longer filled with pride. Zephaniah 3.15 tells us that it's God who returns from battle victorious. Zephaniah 3.16 tells us that it is God who removes the judgment. Zephaniah 3.18 shows us that it is God gathering the mournful. Zephaniah 3.19 shows us that it's God gathering the lame and the outcast and dealing with the oppressors. And Zephaniah 3.20 shows us that it is God who gathers to himself in order to restore our fortunes. What did we do? What did we do there? We weren't in the right place at the right time. We didn't check off the list. We didn't wash ourselves well enough. There was nothing we did. God offers this to you. Now the question is, what do you do with this? What do, you, what do you do with this information that I have given you? If you're not a Christian, if this is not a reality in your life, if you can't look at this and say, yeah, God has done this for me and, and praise God for Jesus, uh, then it's pretty simple. I would challenge you as you leave here today to think about why it isn't. What is it about God? What is it about the Bible? What is it about your life that you think is giving you sort of that inclination to push against this? 
to reject God. I would submit to you that whether you think it's because you don't need God, or if you think it's because you're too messed up for God to love you, or some combination of the two, I would submit to you that the Bible can adequately address both of those claims. The Bible can adequately address both of those reasons for rejecting God and anything you might have in between. Because God is not an incomplete picture. The Bible doesn't give us half the story. The Bible doesn't just show us wrath and anger and judgment. It shows us mercy and love and forgiveness and peace. And those two things are married together by the cross. So think about that. If you are a Christian, my challenge to you is is just a bit more difficult. Having heard this, and a lot of you are like, "Mm -hmm, amen, I I see you. So I I, I see that you're tracking. Um, If you are a Christian in here, having heard this, so what? So what? So you came here, you heard a message, some things you agreed with in here, maybe some things you didn't, uh, some things that maybe made you rejoice, maybe some things that, that made you praise God in your heart, or maybe not, maybe it was just awful, I don't really know, I'm not really trying to give myself too much credit, but, but so what? What are you going to do with that? You're going to go out of here, right? You're going to leave church. You're, you're maybe going to go, if you're popular, uh, I've never been there, but maybe you're going to go to lunch with your friends, you guys are going to um, talk with uh, the wait staff. You're going to go home, maybe do some homework. I don't really know if there's classes going on or not, even though I work at the university. I should probably know that. Um, and then you're going you're gonna to go out into your week, right? And that, the, you're walking into the other side of the dichotomy. So you're stepping out of spiritual and into secular. What will be different about your life? Will you see the people that you're interacting with the ones who, who don't know the Lord, are you going to see them as the sort of souls who were under the judgment that we've just been looking at in Zephaniah for the last two and a half chapters? Are you going to, in light of the fact that God has given you redemption, that God has given you protection, are you going to look to offer that out to others in some way? What are you going to do with the information you've got? Because God didn't die for you. Jesus didn't die for you. So you show up here on Sunday, feel encouraged, worship, eat some amazing watermelon, and then go right back into whatever it was you do. That's not what God died for. God died to give you life so that you could pass from judgment to airship, from cast off to drawn in, from can't approach the holy of holies because you might die, to come freely whenever you want. You have, like, okay, so think about this. The holy of holies is where God's presence would come down. If you're a Christian in this room, You have God's presence in you. You have the Holy Spirit in your life empowering you to understand Scripture, to feel conviction, to repent, to believe, to hold you back from temptation, to communicate your prayers out for you when you can't do it. You have God's presence in you. So what? 
That's my challenge to you. Figure out why. In just a moment, we're going to take communion together. Communion, you're, you're going to hear this every week because it's important. Communion is one of the two things um, that we are commanded to do on a regular basis, right? One is baptisms, um, and the other is communion. What is communion? Communion, when we take the bread and we take the juice, because um, we're Baptists and so we don't do wine, um, you, the bread represents the body of Christ, right? This body that was broken for you. And so for as long as the church has observed the, the ordinance of communion, the bread has literally been broken, just as Christ's body was literally broken, but broken so that you might have life. And what is bread? It's a staple, right? Bread and water. You got those two things, you got life. And so the bread reminds us that God's body, Christ's body, was broken for us that we might have life. The juice, whether it's wine or juice, it really doesn't matter because the, the point is, it's a celebration. It's sweet and it's refreshing. It represents the blood that Christ shed on our behalf to pay for our sins. There's a lot of like Old Testament law, theology, and doctrine in there, but I'm going to shorten it and just say that you know, Christ's blood was shed for you to cover your sins, to wash you clean. And we don't have to do that, right? There, this is not a bloodletting ceremony. This is take the juice because it's sweet because the bitter has been taken for us. So before you step up to take this bread and juice, I, I want you to just take a moment and think about what you've heard. Think about the challenge that I've given you. And I want you to go to God and whatever is on your heart, whatever is on your mind, whatever challenge you might have, whatever struggle you might face, lay it down. And when you stand up to come take communion, I want you to have a joyful, rejoicing heart like we talked about in Zephaniah 3.14 because God is big enough to deal with what you're dealing with he has gone to the mat for you. He has fought the battle for you. And there is a resolution for what are, whatever struggle, whatever burden you are under. And this is a celebration of that fact. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for revealing yourself to us, God, that, that we would know you, that we wouldn't just have... Um, some impersonal relationship that we wouldn't have an incomplete understanding of the God we serve, but you have, you have shown us who you are in your word so that we could worship you in full. I pray, Father, for the, the hearts in this room that, that they would be open to, uh, to your word, to what they might have heard here today, God. I pray that, um, that we would find reasons to glorify your name this week. Um, that we would find the courage to be light in a dark world, God, and that we would forever and only be consumed with thoughts of you and your greatness and how good you are for what you have done for us through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.